You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to M Pavilion. My name is Jen Zelinska, and I'm the manager of public programs here at M Pavilion. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians on the land on which we meet. The Yalakut Willem are part of the Boomerang, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, their elders, past, present, and to the future. Tonight, we are so delighted to have Crystal Dinafoli join us for this M Talk on 65,000 plus years of Indigenous astronomy. <laughs> Crystal is a Camilla Roy astrophysics student at Monash University. Her research and tonight's talk will explore the intricate, complex understandings of our First Nations people and what they have for the sky and its objects. I'm going to hand over to Crystal and I'm sure she'll blow you away. So before I start as well, I would like to acknowledge um, that tonight we're gathered here on the land of the Boomerang. And so we're, qu we're quite lucky we're standing on, you know, beautiful grounds with beautiful weather um, and hopefully tonight essentially paying a bit of that respect in the explanation of Aboriginal knowledge and being, yeah, I, I guess quite grateful to be here. Um, first of all, thanks for everyone for coming. Uh, this is an incredible turnout. I'm very, very excited. I hope everyone else is as enthusiastic as I am about learning some of this stuff. Um, I'm going to essentially give you an, what I think is an awesome overview of all of my favourite topics to do with Indigenous astronomy. Uh, there is everything from looking at the sun and the moon to planets to variable stars, so stars that are changing over time with their brightness, to supernova, so those big fiery death of stars. So I have a lot to get through, um, but to start it off, I'm going to sort of give everyone a crash course in Aboriginal culture, because I know that sometimes we have not all learnt the same things. And so I just want to make sure we're sort of starting off with that same footing and moving on from there. All right, so... Hopefully everyone can sort of see a screen. I know probably viewing conditions aren't super perfect, so I'm going to do my best to explain absolutely everything. Um, but what you should be seeing is a map of the 250 different language groups that belong to Aboriginal culture across this continent. And so I think that's a really important concept, the fact that you're not actually, we're not here standing tonight going, oh, we're talking about this homogenous group of Indigenous, whatever that means, you know, or homogenous group of Aboriginal people. We're actually trying to summarise different knowledges from 250 different vast countries with their own different states and dialects within that of these groups that are so different and so diverse. And each group with a fully different language, their knowledge and their customs are as different as their languages. So tonight when I talk about diff these different topics, I'm going to be telling you which group the knowledge has come from. You're going to be seeing a bias here, and I'm going to get that, like acknowledge that right from the start, that a lot of the knowledge I like to present is Gamilaroi knowledge, and that is because that's where my family are from. We are of Gamilaroi nation. Um, and so it just brings me a lot of excitement to be able to talk about those topics. Um, but so how we will define things. Indigenous is a combination of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledges. So Indigenous astronomy is com combining both. When I'm talking about Aboriginal groups, I will talk about the specific countries. Cool. Hey, we're all across that so far. So very different groups, and I'm going to try and combine so much of this knowledge, which is not how you should probably approach it. All right, so Aboriginal culture, um, it's, I guess you can sort of summarise it with this concept of orality. And that's how, it, I guess, it differs greatly from what we're used to in a Western society with this, you know, Western way of going about things. We have our written textbooks, and we're like, yes! This is accurate, and this is everything, and this is how we know evidence, this is how we can trust our science, it's all here. Any other way of doing it? Nah, that's just, how can you trust it? Like, that's crazy, it's not written down, you can't check that. Like, you know, we can't wrap our heads around it. And I get it, right? I, like, I get that that's sort of what we're used to. And so we're gonna have to sort of rewind a little bit of that thinking tonight and try and think from, I guess, a whole new different way of learning content and a new way of passing along content and trusting in that, that that can remain accurate and can be extended to all members of community. So reality comes in many different forms. So you can represent knowledge through things like artwork, things through, you know, stories, things through songs. 
A lot of these stories that you're probably slightly familiar with. So we, we talk about dream time stories, all these dreaming stories. Um, and you're probably familiar with these sort of great mythical creatures like the rainbow serpent and things that seem so fantastical and perhaps mythical, right? But actually, a lot of these stories are what we use to communicate this knowledge. So if you have something that's really important, some concept, right? You want to be able to explain it to different people, different groups within the community. You want to put it into a form that is easy to understand, easy to relate to, and easy to be passed along without complicating that message. And so this is how we get these stories. If I want to talk about the sun and the moon, it's really easy for me to, you know, relate the sun to a woman and the moon to a man. And if I'm trying to talk about some specific relationship between these two objects, I can talk about that as some interaction or relationship between these two people. And so it's easy for people to get that general gist. If we talk about, you know, say, the sun and the moon, or the sun woman, the moon man, they go for a walk, but they're never quite together. They bypass each other, but we don't commonly see them sharing the same road. It's an easy way of getting across that concept, right? And it's sort of hard to muddle that one up. So a lot of these stories that seem sort of like great and fantastical, it's usually just a way of encoding certain knowledges. And so a lot of the science is found within these stories. So that's what I'm going to show you with you tonight. These stories, it's actually quite a large part of the knowledge, and it's a way that we can pass it along for generations. So I want to start with a way of looking at the skies that's also a bit different from probably what we're used to with modern astronomy. So here in the Southern Hemisphere, we're actually quite lucky. We have something that's a little bit different to the Northern Hemisphere. And the Northern Hemisphere is we get where we get a lot of those standard constellations, right? That's what we're sort of used to. However, in the Southern Hemisphere, we get a really good view of our Milky Way. And so in you know, uh, times with no light pollution, you're looking up, what you're actually seeing is this haze, this, these bright sort of gathering of stars, but also a lot of gas and dust that's blocking a lot of that light coming to you. And so what we get instead is we can also make dark sky constellations. So looking at those dark places within the Milky Way, we can see shapes. And so this is quite a common feature in not just indigenous or Australian Aboriginal like, uh, astronomy, but also very common in different southern groups, like southern hemisphere groups around the world, looking at these dark sky spaces. And so I wanted to uh, start off by playing a video. Um, it's by Milleroy man Ben Flick, and he's actually talking about a, um, one of the most iconic dark sky constellations, and this is the emu in the sky. I'd just like to talk about um, some traditional knowledge that was handed down to most of us Indigenous fellows in this area. And it's um, the emu in the sky. Around April, May every year, the emu will appear in the Milky Way. Just underneath the Southern Cross, you'll see a dark spot, a rounded dark spot. That's the head of the emu. In front of him, of course, is his beak. And as we follow it down, you can see his neck in the dark spots of the Milky Way. Comes right down to his body. You can see his legs. And you can see a couple of eggs underneath. At that certain time of year, it's the time that, for us to go out and collect emu eggs. We go out, of course, into the bush, always leaving some eggs for next year and for the generations to keep going. They only last up until early June. Any time after early June, they start getting chicks in them. But before that, from April, May, you're pretty right to go gather. Awesome. All right. So. The emu in the sky. Um, this is, tends to be one of the topics that people have probably been exposed to in some way. Um, it's also worth noting, so this emu, it means a lot to many different groups across Australia. So this is a Gamilaroi-specific tradition, except all different countries have their own version of what this means. Um, and also, it's really interesting to note that this is a similar uh, shape that's been picked up on in different countries right across the world. And so I think it's the, there's like an indigenous Brazilian group where they see it as their bird, the raya and similar connections are made through that. So this, uh, the emu in the sky, it can be used uh, to, I guess, use as like a calendar to try and like understand the way that the animal, the emu itself on the ground, is changing throughout the year. 
And so you can look at the positions of the emu at sunset and see what uh, orientation that the Milky Way is in, and that can actually tell you a lot about what's happening with the emu itself. So here, um, if everyone can see the panel at all, we have um, the, uh, like the panel A, which is autumn, um, and what we're seeing is what looks to be an emu that's running. And what we're actually seeing is a female, female emu, and she's supposed to be running for a mate. And so this is around the time of the year that you could actually collect the eggs and it would be fine, obviously with a focus on sustainable harvesting methods, you know, leaving an, um, taking what you need, but leaving enough for future gen generations. Looking at panel B, this is what we get in winter. And so this is seen as a male emu roosting or incubating over the eggs. So it's said that, you know, the legs have disappeared at this point. Um, and this is probably where you start to see different groups see what looks to be eggs as well, um, the feature of eggs looking within that constellation. And so this is around the time of the year that you would actually stop harvesting the eggs because the chicks would be forming within them. Uh, panel C, this is what we get around springtime and it relates to important ceremonial events. And then panel D, um, what looks to be essentially the emu lowering itself down into the waterhole of the horizon. And so this is uh, used as a descriptor for, I guess, like displacing that water um, and describing those dry, arid conditions of summer. And so it's a cyclic tale. We come back then to the emu when she runs in autumn and we know that we can collect eggs again. This is a good example of how oral traditions work, especially when it comes to Indigenous astronomy, because you have different layers of knowledge within the one story. You can have a lot of overlap as well. But in this story in particular, we're seeing the way that this constellation moves throughout the year and we're learning about not only what's happening to the emu itself, the eggs, but also our water sources and the environmental changes and essentially climate, everything. Just it all ties into one story. And we can make it as simple as we want or as like detailed and as complicated as we want. We can talk to kids going, oh, look, the emu's here, she's running. Or the emu's going away, you know, no more eggs. Or we can really start to pull apart and have a look at all these different layers. Um, so you get this quite a lot with oral traditions. You also get layers of um, moral values and everything incorporated into these stories. So it's very interdisciplinary. It's not separating, this is the only information you need. It is taking everything that seems to be important and putting it into this story. So coming to something that's a bit more empirical. So when we think about science, we're thinking about, you know, evidence-based work. You know, trying to understand something, possibly trying to, I don't know, use what we're learning to predict something. And I think a good example of that is being able to use the skies to predict weather. And so here, I have a moon halo. Ooh. Do you want to raise your hand if you've seen a moon halo before? <laughs> okay, it's pretty, pretty good. Um, I've only seen a few and I don't know how unlucky I am for that, but one of them was a couple months ago and my sister usually attends a lot of my talks. So she's hear me speak about moon halos before um, and I can't help but be a little bit of a nerd. So we're walking outside and I'm like, oh, look at it, oh my God, and it's gonna rain soon and I know these things and I just get very excited about it. So anyway, we can use moon halos and we are not the only culture to do so. Groups right around the world, they see moon halos and they actually realize a connection to wet weather events. So once again, a Gamilaroi tale, um, we have our moon man, Baloo. And what's said is that when you see a moon halo forming, it's actually Baloo building himself a shelter, like a hut. Um, which also, to just clarify, Aboriginal people did have shelters and homes, just in case anyone was um, still thinking that they were just nomadic groups. Just to clarify. <laughs> um, but you'd also have a look bet between the shelter, between this moon halo, having a look at the stars that you could find between the moon and between the halo. It was said that if you could see more stars, perhaps the rain wouldn't be as imminent or, you know, as, uh, as abundant, I guess. Um, but if you couldn't see many stars, you knew that it was incoming. So the, I guess the science behind moon halos, the way they work, is that they actually form when ice crystals form in the atmosphere. So uh, these ice crystals, they reflect and they refract light that's coming in, and we get this 22-degree halo shape. And that's due to wavelengths and ice crystal structures and all this weird stuff I don't like talking about. So we'll just accept that it's 22 degree halo. But these are really interesting because these ice crystals do actually form preceding wet weather events. And so if you see a moon halo, particularly if you have nice skies, usually it's a sign of that incoming weather. And I just wanted to include a little, a little video of a moon halo because I think they're so pretty and mystical and I don't think we see enough of them mystical music to accompany it too. You're welcome. Okay. So, dynamics of the sun and moon. 
fancy ways of saying movement, relative movement. We're looking at what happens to these objects. Um, but there's quite an uh, endless number of different stories related to the sun and the moon for Aboriginal astronomy right across the continent. Um, I wanted to share a couple that I think are, some are funny, um, some are pretty cool. Um, I'm starting off with something that's probably a bit funnier, and you can see I've incorrectly formatted this slide, so if we could all acknowledge how much that's killing me right now <laughs> to be noticing that while I'm standing up here. Um, but this is a tale that's coming up from Yolnu country, so this is up in Arnhem Land. Um, and this is talking about their moon man, Galindi. And this is a story that's not super PG, so I'm going to give us a very awesome uh, summarised version that's super happy, to an extent. Anyway, so Galindi, the moon man, he is... Um, someone who, uh, you know, starting off sort of youthful and young, we're seeing this waxing moon, you know, little figure uh, starting off in life, um, settles down and starts to get a little bit lazy. And so he's, you know, starting to eat a lot of food and enjoy those sort of pleasures, I guess, but also not really doing much movement, not helping out around the house, just generally not being a super great partner. His wife isn't super keen on this. And skipping some details, she decides to try and help him lose weight in a way that probably would not help people stay alive. You can take that information and get creative with however you think she went about doing that. Anyway, we start getting into our waning moon uh, part of the, the moon cycle. So this is Galindi, right? He's, he's, you know, he's, he's mortally wounded, his life is over, oh no. But then he gets a second chance. So he's starting new, young thin, free to do whatever he wants. And what do we see? We think he's learned from his mistakes. You know, moving on in life, things are going to go good, right? Not at all. So Glindy falls back into those same habits and essentially this is just this cyclic story explaining how the moon changes with a, I guess like a fun, fun story that also communicates morals and values to the community. So things like gluttony and, you know, not pulling your weight, I guess. Um, it's not, not something that's valued within the community. So we have these little little descriptions. Also something I wanted to highlight as well is um, Torres Strait Islander use for the moon, looking at these changes, these phases across uh, the lunar calendar. I was going to say the month, it's not quite the month, but the lunar calendar. Um, so we're probably sort of aware the moon has effects on our tides. So it has this gravitational influence, how it goes around us. And I know some movies have mentioned that perhaps you've come across. And also the sun has gravitational effects. It's got us in its orbit, so we are, we are going around that thing that's definitely got some sort of impact on us. Well, there's a certain time of, um, I guess, like the lunar phases where, you know, the moon's on this perfect angle with us, the sun's on a different angle, and those combined gravitational influences actually affect how our tides, like what happens to our tides. But it results in these things called neap tides, so where everything's just sort of at this sort of, almost like balance. Um, Torres Strait Islander astronomers, or fishermen, could use this phase of the moon to know that this is when the water would be churning less. So they know it has that effect on the neap tides, they would know that that was the best time to go fishing. So there's many different um, uses for the moon and that understanding to how it also impacts life down here on the ground. This has already been spoiled what the next topic is, um, but I'm still going to build it up anyway so we can all get excited and people who can't see a screen will get excited with me. It's going to be good. Um, but this is another Gamilaroi tale. So we're going back to our moon man, Baloo, but we're also focusing on our sun woman, Yi. So moon man, gorgeous person. Sun woman, absolutely smitten. Following him around, um, you know, that sort of unrequited love, absolute affection. So the moon man is not interested at all and he tries to get away from her. And so this, uh, the tale describes him essentially zigzagging across the sky, you know, trying to escape her advances. What's interesting is that descriptor of this zigzagging motion. Because the sun, its path across the sky, we call it the ecliptic. Um, it's fairly consistent, like in the long term. We do have shorter and longer days, which I will get into later in the talk. Um, but generally, it's pretty consistent. And so our moon, all the planets, we all tend to follow that path across the sky, but with some variation, because we're all orbiting the sun. So we all tend to be in that same plane, and we all tend to be following that one line across the sky. So it's interesting to hear this zigzagging motion because it's true that the moon actually does go sometimes above and sometimes below the sun's path across the sky. So we have these little, these little descriptions with, um, I guess, like a little bit more meaning behind it than what we just initially read. So anyway, the, the sun chasing after the moon. They say that once... Oh, 
I can never say this without going for the pun, and then I have to like highlight how cringe the pun is because it's scientifically inaccurate, but I'm going to say it anyway. But once in a blue moon, ha ha ha. Okay. Uh, they say that they actually meet in an embrace, and this embrace is described as the moon man covering the sun woman. And so what this is describing is a total solar eclipse, that act of the moon covering the sun. What's interesting about total solar, total solar eclipses is how rare they are. So in any one region, they could occur 400 years between. So I've never seen one. Maybe in the next 400, I might have, and then I could update this segment of the talk. So it's interesting because this highlights the longevity of these oral traditions um, and shows you that it's a bit of information that either you've had to learn from someone or have seen for yourself or has been passed along by someone who saw it a while ago. And this isn't even the most impressive timeline we have. There are countless examples of these sort of stories being passed along for not just hundreds, but thousands of years. And we can figure this out by using the geological descriptions or astronomical descriptions that appear in these stories or many other different features. So this next thing I want to talk about is actually um, native to Kulin Nation land. So here we're on Boomerang at the moment, but this is out on Wathorong country. Um, so astronomical stone arrangements, ooh. I'm going to call on someone here who wants to tell me of probably a pretty popular stone arrangement that they're aware of. Maybe in Europe? You're right, Stonehenge. How exciting. So, you know, we're not, we're not unfamiliar to this idea of using stone arrangements related to astronomy. We have examples of this in, in uh, I guess, on this continent. So, Wathorong country is one I want to talk about, but I know we have other ones similarly on Kulin Nation lands, which is very exciting, and people are in the crowd of researching this right now. Shout out to Jason and Dwayne. This is, yeah, this is uh, the stone arrangement called, like, the Wadi Yuang Stone Arrangement, so out in Wathorong country. It's interesting. Um, it's a collection of uh, basalt rock. I think it's about 50 metres across around 100 different stones, um, and you get this sort of wonky diamond circle shape. At first, it may seem a bit, you know, insignificant. But we can start to pull it apart, and I won't use my pointer because people are out in the crowd, so I'm going to try and be a bit more descriptive than that. So looking at it, we can see that we have the north uh, cardinal point sort of indicated. So you can look up and see, the, you know, the top of the page is north, so we can work out east, south, west. We also have these funky little uh, white dotted lines that go across the page. And these are actually gradient lines, so it's indicating that this is actually on a hill. So it does slowly go down. Now, um, we can see that there's some stones missing. So these stones up here, aren't intentionally gone. They're actually just at the base of uh, where these gradient lines lead to. So they should be there. They're just a little further away and did not make the cut for the scale of this picture that I wanted. So then, if we look, um, if we stand at this uh, open space down here in our far east corner, and we use this as a reference point, and we look over at these rocks, we can actually see something important happening in the west of the country every single night. Does anyone want to tell me what that is? The sunset, yes. Good work, A+. Plus. So, if we actually stand at this point and we're looking over to the west across the year and looking at where the sun actually sets, we realise that this lines up with the summer and winter solstices and the equinox, which is pretty exciting. So this is um, essentially, if, uh, this is an example of one of the world's first ob observatories, which is sort of mind-blowing when you think about it like that. So the reason that we actually have solstices and equinoxes, like what is that? Why do they happen? We've probably heard the words, we have shorter days in the winter solstice. But this all comes down to the tilt of our Earth's axis. So we have a 23 degree tilt. So instead of, you know, going like this and going around the sun just perfectly standing up there, we're more like this. And we're just weirdly sort of going around like that. And so this actually leads to us having, being exposed to the sunlight in different areas for different lengths of time throughout the year. So you can see down here, um, in the winter, in the southern hemisphere, um, over in June, that we are not really getting much of the sun's light. So we have these shorter days. Over in the summer, we're just getting absolutely blasted with it. So we have these longer days. So this is the reason for these, uh, these changes in day length. And it's something that has been observed by Aboriginal astronomers for a very long time. And I, this site hasn't been properly dated, um, but from what I know, estimates put it around 10,000 years, which is far longer than Stonehenge. So just to highlight the just insane timescales that we're dealing with here. It's incredible. 
Okay, I also wanted to highlight this, as you can find this in Gurungai National Park in Sydney. Um, but this is actually, it's an amazing, amazing site. So basalt rock, you walk out into this clearing, everyone can go to it, which is blowing my mind because I feel like we should really be preserving that place, to be honest. Um, but it's essentially like a living Aboriginal museum or art gallery. You walk there and there are all these engravings of different artworks for, I, I'm not great with distance, but for long distances. One of my favourite ones is actually an engraving of the emu in the sky. So um, it's engraved in such a way that it lines up with the position that you would be looking for when you know that the emu eggs are good for collecting. So in this clearing, that's what you find. So we have many different examples of being able to use rock formations or rock art to actually relate to astronomy and preserve that knowledge. Okay. So planets. Ooh. I, I, I feel like I have this bad habit of every topic we jump to, I'm going to go, this is my favourite topic. But I know I'm going to do it for the next one after this. But this really is like one of my favourite topics. So the planets have always been a point of curiosity for astronomers right around the world. And that's because they, at first glance, they look like they're stars. We look up and we're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That, that lines up with the rest of what we're looking at. Um, but if you actually to track their movement across the year, you're going to realise that they're not behaving like stars. So they are doing what they want. They are moving much faster when stars are sort of staying very consistent as these pinpoints of light at very vast distances. Um, and then sometimes, you know, they do some weird things, very weird movements, which um, any astrologers, anyone who cares about horoscopes might be aware of, which is interesting because a lot of scientists don't seem, like not, you know, science students don't seem to be aware of this, but astrologers do. And it's like, criticise them all you want. They know things. So this is what I was trying to describe before, but a diagram is always much, much more helpful. This is that sun's path across the sky, the ecliptic. So that's our beautiful yellow line. And you can see how a number of objects um, don't be fooled by the bright stars, but a number of the important objects actually follow along this line um, because we are all in that solar system, all in that same sort of plane, you know, going about our lives. So what you can see here is actually the, uh, the, the planets that we can actually detect with the human eye. So we have Mercury, closest planet to the sun. We have Venus and Mars. Um, Venus and Jupiter are some of our brightest objects, and then we have Mars, our, our red planet, our neighbour. We also have Saturn. And I feel like it's important to acknowledge as well that Saturn's actually got a little bit more, um, I guess, traits that are a bit more interesting nowadays. Because in the past, it usually was like, you know, Saturn's the second largest planet, and Saturn has the second most moon. It's always second. But they've found, like, in the last couple of months, 20 extra moons for Saturn. So... Clap for Saturn, it's uh, the, the planet with the most moons in our solar system. Very exciting. It's got like 80 or 100 at this point. <laughs> Justice for Saturn. Okay, so this ecliptic, this sun's path for a lot of different Aboriginal groups, this is a very important uh, feature in the sky. The great ancestral path, it's the road that quite a lot of these objects move along. But one of the things I want to talk about is this concept of retrograde motion. So you want to put your hand up if you have heard of retrograde motion before? Yes. Do you want to leave your hands up if you can describe it? Awesome. But the astrologers know it. It's crazy. They know when Mars is in retrograde. It's, it's phenomenal. Okay, so I'm going to show you some videos and I hope everyone can see a screen because I feel like this is the best way to get across this topic or this concept. So, awesome. Okay, so retrograde motion is the effect that we get when it looks like the planets, for some weird reason, have decided to stop and just go backwards, which doesn't feel very natural if you're observing it. Like, if we all have this natural flow to how things go across the sky, and then all of a sudden Mars just stops and goes, nah, like, I'm heading back. It's, it's confusing. It's confused astronomers for tens of thousands of years, even longer. Um, and so I'm going to break it down for us here. So the reason that this occurs, it's all an optical illusion. It's essentially the consequence of us being in an eternal race with our other planets. So we have the sun in the centre, we all orbit around it. And we are all orbiting at our own different speeds, with our own different distances. And so it's not going to be consistent. There's going to be that change. Um, and what you're essentially going to come down to is that we're going to win the race occasionally. And if we win the race, it's going to look like the planets we're passing were actually, like, leaving behind. 
In reality, they're still just going along. But since it's, we're not looking from the sun's point of view, we're looking from Earth's point of view in the midst of this movement, it's going to look like things are slowing down. So I want to play this video from the perspective of us on Earth, not really, like, looking from Earth, looking over at Mars. So you can see these highlighted here. And if we were to draw a line through Mars as how we would be observing it from Earth, not from the sun, you'll actually see these observations of these perfect dots of Mars throughout the year. Eventually, when we overtake Mars on the interior, it's going to look like Mars is actually heading backwards. So it's a really cool phenomenon. You can see it with all planets. And this was also observed by Aboriginal astronomers. So Waterman Group, um, who are quite iconic when it comes to astronomy, they have, I think it's uh, three different stars actually named after Waterman names. So consistent uh, right across the world. Um, most popular to note is actually the fifth star of the Southern Cross. So that little, little star in our flag in the midst of those four giant ones. It's Epsilon Crucis, and it's now known as Geenan. And that's a Waterman word, and if you were to search it up right across the world, world, that's its official name. It's an Aboriginal name. Very cool. Very cool people who made that happen. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, what in retrograde motion. Very interesting feature. Now, this is a little hands-on. So I'm going to call on some people from the audience. So get ready and study hard, pay attention, and do your homework we're going to look at this concept of navigation and how we can use the sky to help us navigate. And so you've probably heard, um, I know I heard this a lot growing up, right, that we could use the Southern Cross to find South. And I realised I could tell people that, and like that was a perk of being in the Southern Hemisphere, but I don't know how to actually do it. So tonight we're all going to learn how to do it. And you're going to leave and tell all the people you know how to do it, like what I do, take all my friends camping, teach them how to do it, have them regret coming camping with me, as it turns into a hands-on astronomy lesson. But this is something you can take home for sure. Okay, so I won't bore you with the details, but essentially um, when we look at the night sky, we're almost looking at another sphere. So we're here on the sphere of Earth, and if we're looking at the sky, we get the celestial sphere. So even though those stars are so far away, it looks like they're very consistently just painted onto this you know, night sky, and they stay in those spaces very consistently, and it's all very consistent for thousands of years. That wind could not do that. Cool. All right, start again. So where we're looking at, we can actually look at the stars and we have a way of describing that in astronomy. So on Earth, we have our latitude and our longitude to figure out our position. In astronomy, we have different things you can use, but I'm going to talk about declination and there's right ascension, but who cares? We're talking about declination, which is synonymous with our latitude. Cool, so declination, latitude. The only things we have to care about, and that's how far up the globe we are. You know, so talking about our, our distance from either the South Pole or to the equator. So when we look at the night sky, we look at these stars, we can actually use our own features to be able to tell some, some little things about them. So who's watched Moana? Can I raise your hand? Yes. There should be more hands up, by the way, so go home. And another thing we're adding to the homework list. So these are tr tried and true techniques that you can use to actually tell distances in the sky. So we're talking about like angular separation. And that was an astronomy term. So, you know, it's, 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 it's formal in some way, this talk. But we can actually use these so that we have um, pretty consistent ratios between our arm's length and our like finger width and hand width. It's crazy. So if you want to like raise up your hands, <laughs> put your pinky in the air. So generally, if you have your arm stretched out, your pinky stretched out, that should, that top of your, your pinky finger, should actually equal about one degree in the night sky. And it's because of our arm length to our hand length. So, you know, it's a little bit of error to it, but pretty consistently that's one degree. If we come up with three fingers, this is how we have five degrees in the sky. Yep, perfect. And stretch out those arms too. And then fist, 10 degrees. Very, uh, this one's probably one of the most popular ones for actually remembering. Um, then we have like this sort of rocker symbol, which is about 15 degrees in the sky. And then we have the shaka, the, the thing that like a lot of surfers do, which is about 25 degrees and actually has a reason behind why it exists. And that's because Polynesian explorers, uh, seafarers, using that for um, figuring out distances in the sky. So that's really important because we're going to use that later. So keep it in your brains. Yes. All right. So this is how we find south. And we can use the Southern Cross. 
And also I wanted to include this. Um, it's by Safina Stewart and it's a very beautiful artwork of the Southern Cross. So you're welcome for that one. All right. So looking at the Southern Cross, um, even in Melbourne, so we lose quite a lot of these stars that we get to see. Uh, we can't observe all of them. A lot of the fainter ones get knocked out by light pollution. But you can see the Southern Cross. And usually, pretty, pretty obviously, you can see these things called the pointers. And so these are near the Southern Cross and they're just two very bright stars. And they're very bright. So they, they hang in there, right? So if you can locate the pointers in the Southern Cross, very similar area in the sky, we can actually use this to figure out where the South Celestial Pole is. And so... This is different from our South Pole because of that, I guess like that, uh, I don't know, it's sort of, I guess, it's essentially that point in our sky where everything revolves around. So it's not super perfect aligned up with our actual South Pole, but this is like how in the Northern Hemisphere they have a star called Polaris that's on the North Pole in the sky, the North Celestial Pole. And so it looks like that sky is spinning around this star and that star is almost staying in spot or just doing very tiny circles. We don't have a great south southern star in our South Celestial Pole, but we can still track where it is and we can actually use that to tell our distance on our country, so where we actually are here in Melbourne tonight. So using the, um, the Southern Cross, those two, I guess... Uh, Longer main stars, separated stars here. You can see on the diagram, I'm not good with words sometimes. But using these stars, if we were to draw a straight line right through it and flow that line across, while also looking at the pointers, bisecting them, so straight in the middle, also giving a right angle line, if you'd actually just stand there in night sky with both arms out and just sort of bring that forward, that point where they cross is actually where the south celestial pole is. Which is quite handy to know. You can also, if that's too much, two things to look at at once, that's way too much, you can just focus on the Southern Cross, take that distance between those two top stars, or stars that go this way, I'm great with this, but anyway, if you take that distance, times about like four and a half, like sort of follow that four and a half times the length, and we can use what we've learnt now about our hand distances, that's also the South Celestial Pole. So these are two techniques you can use to find that spot. But what's interesting is if we were to find this spot in the sky, and then to use our cool little hand movements to count the number of degrees, if we were to actually find that between our horizon and where the South Celestial Pole is, that actually tells us our latitude on the planet. So perfect, you know, perfect conditions tonight. If we were to able to see the Southern Cross, find this South Celestial Point in the sky, it's going to be this blank spot because we don't have a star, but we, that's fine, we've figured out how to find it. If we actually go like this and figure out the distance, it's going to come out to around 38 degrees. And that's because our latitude is 38 degrees south. So this is a technique you can use to be able to tell distance across the planet. This is also tying into um, an Aboriginal concept of the Earth not being flat. And that's because as you travel vast distances with very long song lines, tracking the way the sky is actually changing, you're going to see that sky rotate across relative to you, where your position is. So it's very, it's very cool. And we, that's a benefit to us as well, that we have groups that travel from coast to coast, right up Australia, to deduce something like that as well. Okay. So... This is generally my last topic. It's broken down into two different sections. Um, and as I said before, it's my favorite topic. Yay. <laughs> but this is variable stars. And so these are stars that vary in their brightness over time. We have two different uh, ways we can break up variable stars. There's heaps of different ways, actually. And also my ways aren't superficial ways. I'm just doing it because I want to. But we have two different types of variable stars. We have things that are very subtle, changing over time. And then we have, you know, the very in-your-face type change. So we're going to start off with the subtle one first. The main... Oh, no, I was going to say the main star. I'm going to say it anyway, but okay, but pun, and it was going to be accidental. But anyway, the main star of our variable star focus tonight is a constellation. Yep. <laughs> you might be familiar with it. Um, this is actually the constellation Orion, so very popular in the Greek traditions. Um, it's also one of the easier ones I find to actually find in the sky because you look for that iconic, you know, Orion's belt, those three stars across, and then generally go, does it look like it has shoulders? Do they look like their legs? You're like, yeah, that, looks, that doesn't look like any three stars. That looks like the three stars. So it's a very cool constellation. Um, it also features a very interesting star called Betelgeuse, Betelgeis, however you want to pronounce it, which has been in the news a bit recently. That's because of what I'm going to explain tonight. Yay! So it all ties in. It's a topical topic. Right. So stars of Orion. 
Um, very commonly around the world, this is recognised by different groups to look like a person, which is crazy because we do see these overlaps in different groups right across the world where we look at the stars and we can deduce these same sort of shapes. And so when it comes to Orion, as I said, we have this belt, looks like sort of like a waist, and it has essentially what looks like, you know, these two arms going up in the air and two legs going down as well. And other things that I can't talk about, but there are features that look human about Orion. <laughs> it's... And so we can recognise this shape. So this uh, shape pops up in quite a lot of different oral traditions. Um, this is for Bayami, uh, great creators. This is like a Radjuri, Gamilaroi type um, tradition. But what I'm actually going to focus on is a Kakatha one, which is a South Australian Aboriginal group. And so here on the far right, we have our Orion type figure, Nairuna who um, is not a very nice person. So I'm just going to get that across that I'm going to probably attack his character a lot tonight, but that's the point of this tradition. Our other stars... Um, oh, God. Anyway, our other stars literally and also part of the narrative is uh, Gambaguda. Um, so this is um, represented by the Hades constellation, like Taurus the Bull, I'm pretty sure. I'm very bad with my Greek constellation, so if anyone knows better, you can tell me afterwards, that's fine. Um, but, so this is our next main figure, Gambaguda, and we also have an interesting star in here called Aldebaran. So, so far, Betelgeuse in Orion, Aldebaran in, in Gambaguda. We also have the Eugrelia sisters, represented by the Pleiades, or the Seven Sisters, which is also something I could speak about for three hours, because that's actually the topic of my research, because quite a lot of different groups right around the world look at this cluster of stars and for some reason think of them as a group of women, which is crazy. And what's really interesting about that, because I have my own theories about why and probably similar to why a lot of people do, but it's because of these stars' movement across the sky. We see this figure that's always seen as a person or a man chasing these group of seven stars every night. So you can sort of see how we reach these sort of conclusions, but very interesting. So Eugrelia is seen as a group of sisters and Gambaguda is their older sister. So Nairuna, he is quite interested in the, uh, the sisters, um, decides to pursue them quite aggressively, not in a great way that you probably should. Um, and this story as well is highlighting those values of consent and learning when to back off in a friendly way. So he decides to pursue them and Gambaguda, being the tough protective sister she is, she jumps in between and she taunts him and essentially tells him to back off. Uh, he has a bit of a temper problem. So what he decides to do, very rational response, but also I'm not condoning even slightly and it's not rational, I was being sarcastic, um, but he decides to actually try and attack Gambaguda. And what he does is he tries to summon fire magic in his right fist. So this is where we're looking at the star of Betelgeuse, you know, summoning this fire magic and going to take and strike at her and, ooh, physical altercations. Gambaguda, she has her own trick up her sleeve, or her ankle, her pant sleeve. Um, <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> But what she does is she actually summons fire magic in her left foot. And so, ooh, epic showdown, right? Fire magic, right fist, fire magic, left foot. Like, this is going to be crazy. Um, what actually happens is Gambaguda just, like, kicks dirt at him. And it gets in his eyes and it hurts him. But the more important thing is it really wounds that ego. It's a really simple way of being brought down. And so, with this embarrassment, his fire magic died down, dies down as well. After a while, he gets confident again. He's like, no, this is ridiculous. I can fight her. This is crazy. And so he fight, summons this fire magic right back up. And he goes to take a strike at her. But unfortunately for Gambaguda, she can't summon the fire magic back in her left foot. So what she does is she calls upon a father dingo named Papa and his dingo pups, which form what is traditionally the, uh, the shield of Orion, I think. And they stand in between. And right now you can expect an epic showdown again, right? We've got this fire magic in this fist. We've got dingoes involved. Crazy, right? No. What we have is we have the dingo pups like bite at his ankles and they wound him in an embarrassing way once again. It's enough to deter him, but it really hurts that ego and his fire magic dies down. So what we enter is this cyclic story. When uh, Naruna is feeling confident, he summons his fire magic back up and he goes to take a strike at Gambaguda. When she can't summon her fire magic back, she can call upon um, either the father dingo or she can kick back at him when it is working, essentially. And so what we're looking at is a descriptor of variable stars, these stars changing in brightness over time and an easy way of describing this and passing it along to many groups for many generations. It's a simple story. Um, so I'm going to include some really cool plots 
just for the astronomers in the audience. Um, and I'm also going to tear them apart because I think they're so illogical. So, if we're looking over here at the far left, this is actually how we measure brightness as astronomers. So we're looking at magnitudes. But because we're astronomers, it's an inverted scale. So the smaller the number is, the brighter the star is. So that's why you're seeing one down to zero at the top. Zero is very bright. Makes a lot of sense. Down here as well, um, it's Julian dates, so it's just, it's just days, but we have to make it different. So shouldn't be, yeah, anyway. So I'll stop roasting this graph, but it's just showing you how that brightness changes over time and over these long scales over a matter of years. This is also a comparison of how Aldebaran, so again, Bagouda's uh, brightness changes respective, um, in respect to how Betelgeuse also changes. So you can see how Betelgeuse is much more consistent in its brightness changing and how Aldebaran is less consistent, but it is still a variable star that can, you can detect, detect with um, the human eye. So, very cool. Um, I wanted to also show a video Ooh. as to uh, why variable stars occur, what's actually happening with them. And so stars' brightness is um, completely correlated to their temperature. And so if a star, it's like sort of us, if we were to wrap ourselves in you know, coats right now, get all nice and snug, we're going to be a lot warmer. And that makes the star brighter. If the star for some reason in internally is going to expand out, it is going to cool down. And so it is going to become dimmer. Dimmer stars are red. Brighter stars are blue and white. And so what we're going to see here is this star closing in, becoming hotter and becoming brighter and whiter and bluer. And so a lot of stars just do this on a bit of a cycle. They expand, they get cooler, they hop down, they get hotter, and that's why we see that change. So Betelgeuse is a variable star. Currently, it's heading into a dimming period, which is exciting for everyone because Betelgeuse is sort of at the end of its life. And so we are quite aware that, could be tonight, it's probably not going to be tonight, um, or in the next 100,000 years, which is very short for a star, it is going to explode. It's going to go supernova. And we'll be able to see that. That'll be like moon brightness hanging in the sky for like a month or a few or so. So it's, it's a very cool event. And we have them pop up um, in a number of different Aboriginal traditions, oral traditions, which I'm going to describe next. Um, and it's just, it's just a really cool feature. It'd be awesome to see one. So with that, jumping onto my very last of the last topics. And this is talking about the other type of variable star, which is a supernova. So this is a tale that's coming from uh, Yolnu country up in Arnhem Land. Um, and also to clarify, this image is actually of Port Jackson in Sydney. So it's different groups, but representing the narrative I'm trying to describe with a visual reference. Okay, so this story talks about two brothers um, two up in Yolnu country who go fishing. So they go fishing out in their canoe. Um, this is something that they're quite used to, particularly the older brother. But unfortunately for them, they didn't realise that the weather was having a bit of a turn. And so they essentially get caught out in a storm out in the middle of the water. The boat is uh, capsized and the older brother being much more experienced, he's able to rescue his younger brother, but unfortunately at the expense of his own life. When the younger brother gets back to land and talks with his community, he explains what's happened and the older brother's sacrifice. They perform a corroboree ceremony in his honour and shortly after, see a star turn up in the sky among the pointers Shaula and Lasath of Scorpio. Um, this is a very common thing. Um, a common way of looking at the stars is actually putting focus onto specific stars representing members of the community or important animals or features, instead of always combining those dots and you know creating these constellations that we're used to, like Orion. So when the star appears, they're like, "Yep, that's clearly the brother sort of passing along." You know, that's the greatest honour for him to essentially be up there. And so the younger brother, he hopes that one day when he is done with his life, that he might be able to join his brother up in the sky, in those banks of the Sky River of the Milky Way. So this seems to be describing a supernova, sort of a star that emerges out of somewhere, lasts for a certain period of time and fades away. And so fading away, leaving those pointers shallow in the south. And so, since Supernova Exciting, I wanted to play a simulation of what one would look like. It's very bright and paused. Perfect. It's essentially this... Um, the reason it occurs is because this, you know, our sun is fusing constantly hydrogen into helium. Larger stars can fuse larger elements, things that are a bit crazy. 
So our sun will only ever really get up to carbon. It's like hydrogen, helium, little bits of other ones, and then carbon, and that's, you know, sort of how far it goes because it's a smaller star. Larger stars have a lot more mass and energy behind them, and they actually die quicker because they are so hot, they're fusing and burning through their mass much faster than smaller stars, which is crazy when we think of having a larger fuel source and they use it much faster than what a small star does. So our sun's a small star. It's got like 11, 12 billion years in its lifetime. We are 4.5 billion years through it. We have a very long time here on Earth. Um, but for these larger stars, they fuse heavier elements and it gets to a point where they're essentially trying to fuse elements together that's actually requiring way more energy than what it's actually emitting. So, yeah, I've forgotten the proper terms. I know it's like endothermic and exothermic reactions in chemistry. Um, but essentially for these larger stars, they try and essentially fuse hydrogen, um, no, iron together. That's way too much for them to do and they just sort of panic and get to a point where they just explode. And that's a gross oversimplification. So, these supernovas, <laughs> very cool. Beetlejuice might go boom. It is dimming now. We're not quite sure why. Probably won't go boom, but hopefully. Not for Beetlejuice, but for us. So what's really interesting about this supernova in particular is that we're not the only group to notice a supernova in this specific part of the sky, which is pretty crazy because none of us have seen one, right? They don't happen very commonly. The group that recorded seeing this in their um, astronomical records is the ancient Chinese astronomers. And they recorded this occurring in the year 393, so around 2,000 years ago. And so this is something we can take it with a pinch of salt, right? It could be the same star, it could be a complete coincidence that the same observation is being made, but it would not be the most crazy, long, like the most crazy example of longevity of oral traditions. We have oral traditions that seem to date back over 10,000 years because of very specific sky descriptors of where stars would be and what geological things would be happening. We have descriptions of volcano, or volcanoes erupting, of meteorite impacts, which we can date ourselves. So a lot of crazy stuff. This would not at all be the most absurd. So that is where I want to leave my talk tonight. Thank you all for your attention. And if you have a thirst for any more knowledge, we have an amazing website and also Facebook pages and Twitter pages where we update on knowledge and events and you can find everything. So thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.